Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, I have to tell you that um, as another birthday approaches very rapidly, I am getting so close to 60, it has been unnerving me a little bit, and it's been bothering me, and I've decided I'm going to have to stop referencing it and just forget about it. And it also occurs to me that um, uh, there are seasons in our lives, and one of the benefits of aging is you enter the season of being a grandparent. And uh, that actually has been a really nice thing. And on occasion, uh, Nanny, that would be a Janny baby, uh, Nanny, and I'm Pappy, uh, the kids come down. We have five grandchildren by our, our daughter. They live in Cumberland, and the kids will come down. And one of their favorite things to do is to pile on Nanny's bed and try to kick Pappy out. But before they go to sleep, they want to hear stories. And they'll say, Pappy... Tell us a story about when you were a little boy. And so I'll tell stories about uh, Eddie, Ernie, Rudy, Richie, Tommy, Johnny, and all the bad things that they did. And um, somewhere in there, I'll fit in some Bible stories. I said, what's a Bible story you want to hear? And of course, Daniel in the lion's den, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And uh, it occurs to me that these are times to be soaked in and preserved. It won't be too long. They won't want to pile on Nanny's bed and hear stories. When they're finally quieting down and we've told a few stories, they always do the same thing. They always want me to end. Pappy, I'll say, this is the last story. Then they'll say, and then you have to sing Granny, Grandma's Feather Bed. And I always sing Grandma's Feather Bed. And by then they're quieting down and they're asleep. Those are good times, aren't they? When Um, you crawl up on your dad's lap and you say, tell me a story. Today, we're asking Jesus to tell us a story. You know that he was a great storyteller, don't you? And he told many stories for our benefit. And today, we're going to just say, Jesus, tell us a story. And the story that he's going to tell us is in Luke's gospel in chapter 18. And uh, I trust that you'll position your notes that they'll be useful to you. Um, We have been, as I've been saying weekly, all summer long, poking around our Bible, studying the topic of prayer. What a topic that is. What a mystery it is. What a marvelous reality it is that we can talk to a God we've never seen. And according to the authority of Scripture, he hears us. He wants us as his church and as his children to communicate with him in prayer. But what a topic prayer is. And so I've heard some different conversations. People have approached me, and uh, it has benefited me. It has benefited others. We're at least thinking about prayer. We are uh, trying to understand some of the tough passages about prayer. We're trying to implement into our lives uh, the discipline of prayer, even the joy of prayer. And someone said to me yesterday afternoon, they are beginning to understand what it means to pray without ceasing. And they are just talking to God all the time. And so we're benefiting. Well, today is our final sermon in the prayer series. We're going to look at a prayer that was prayed by a despicable person. I trust you'll have your ears tuned and your heart sensitive that God might use the message today. 
The story's in Luke chapter 18. We've already been in Luke chapter 18. You'll recall early on in the summer, Pastor Shupi, Dr. Shupi had two series, two sermons on prayer. They were very helpful. And one that he dealt with was this parable that begins in Luke 18, beginning with verse 1. We call it the parable of the persistent widow or the unjust judge where the widow had an issue, but the judge uh, wouldn't pay attention. And by her persistence, she finally received ruling and uh, there were many lessons there and thought-provoking. I appreciate Pastor Mark and his emphasis on the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit of God helps us and assists us in prayer and teaches us how to pray according to God's will. And then Pastor Everett last week did a great job outlining for us some ways that our Lord Jesus models for us a prayer life. He rose early in the morning. He went to secluded places. He prayed before difficult uh, decisions or seasons of difficulty. He focused on prayer. And and it was very helpful. And so we've just been kind of poking around. Uh, This morning, Luke has arranged in this chapter 18, yet another story that Jesus is telling. Now, we don't know that he spoke. Jesus spoke these parables back to back on the same day, on the same occasion. We do know that Luke was not an eyewitness, that he was a researcher, and that he went around and he put together an orderly account of the life and ministry and teaching of our Lord Jesus. And it is interesting, and if you'll take time later, I would encourage you to revisit this chapter in your own time this week. Luke 18, starting with the parable of the persistent widow or the unjust judge. And then he moves immediately in verse 9 into our text today in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, but really you'll realize as he talks about um, coming into the kingdom of God, you must be like an infant. Uh, He then moves to that interesting story that was not a parable, but was a a real occasion, and that rich young ruler comes scooting in on him, wants to know how to have eternal life, and you recognize that not only is Luke arranging his teaching here about prayer, But he's also talking about a deeper topic of what it means to be justified. What does it mean to be right with God? And so you watch for those themes. Let's read our text as we say to Jesus this morning, Jesus, tell us a story. Here's his story. Verse 9, Luke 18. He also told this parable. Uh, Hesitate just a minute. Remember, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It is a common Uh, cut from common cloth. It is something from the natural world that everyone can understand. When Jesus told parables in his day, his listening audience could relate immediately to it. And then embedded in the story was a spiritual truth that he wanted to drive home. So that's what a parable is. It's something that he's making up on the spot. Notice that he's making it up because he's talking to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They were self-righteous people. They thought that they were good at the core. And they treated others with contempt in their self-righteousness. Here's the story. It's about two men. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Uh, Let's mention the temple. The temple was a place where the priest and the high priest would offer sacrifices. It was also a place uh, where there were teachings that would go on. The rabbis in this day would teach out of the scrolls. 
It was a place where there was ritualistic worship together, corporate worship, but there was also the opportunity for people really at any time to come throughout the day and evenings and come to the temple that just wanted to come and pray. That's evidently what our Lord is talking about. And again, in this context and in this culture, uh, his listening audience would have understood and been able to picture in their mind immediately what the temple looked like, what it looked like for people to come in and pray and how people would come and go. Two men, verse 10, went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, imagine that, or even like this tax collector, and you can kind of see him pointing at this guy. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, in contrast, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, here's his prayer. It's a powerful prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, Jesus says, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And our Lord is contrasting, isn't he? The Pharisee and his proud arrogance and the tax collector and his humility. And I think that final verse is loaded. I think the ramification is that he who exalts himself will in the end be humbled He will not inherit eternal life with God. The tax collector, justified, goes away. God heard his prayer, and he humbles himself, and he will then be exalted. What a story it is. It's an interesting story. Let's take a look at it. We've already mentioned that this is Jesus at his finest telling stories, driving home spiritual truth. Let's have ears to hear today. First of all, we have a comparison of two men. And let's just remind ourselves of what we're looking at here. Jesus already said in verse 9 that there were those around him who trusted in themselves and were righteous in their self-righteousness, and they treated others with contempt. The comparison of two men begins with the Pharisee. He says it as he begins the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee. A Pharisee, you need to understand, is a, is, was a very proud, number one, they were very proud in their religious self-righteousness. They were very religiously self-righteous. They thought they couldn't imagine that there would be anything in their lives, heart, and mind that God would disapprove of. They were self-righteous, and they were arrogant and proud. And you can recognize that part of what probably motivated Jesus to tell this story is that in their self-righteousness, they treated others with contempt. They were ugly people, but they thought they were beautiful people. Secondly, they were very public. Not only were they proud, but they were very public in their presentation. They were concerned about image. We have a lot about Pharisees in our New Testament, particularly in the Gospels. They were continually butting heads with our Lord. They dressed in religious outfits. They were involved in religious leadership. They were actually involved in sort of a religious political combination of a puppet leadership where Rome could use the religious leaders of the day to manipulate the mass 
masses and the Pharisees really strutted around like roosters and they wanted everybody to know and they would put their money in. No doubt they turned their paper money into coins just so you could hear it rattle in the box at the temple so that people would say, my, didn't he put a lot of money in the offering plate? And our Lord reminds us earlier in the Sermon on the Mount that that's their reward. They were looking for the praise of people because they were public. They were pompous, self-important. They strutted around. They were proud. They were public. They were pompous, arrogant, thinking that their righteousness, because of who they were, would certainly please God. We see in contrast in the comparison of two men that the other is a tax collector. Your Bible might say publican. Publican. I did not say Republican. I said publican. Two men, verse 10, went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. That's what a publican was. It was a word for the one who collected taxes. What are these guys all about? You need to know, number one, that they had a reputation of being extortionists. They had a reputation of, of bullying and abusing people out of money that they didn't really have to give, but they would get it out of them almost as an extortionist. You'll notice that the Pharisee, when he was praying, we're going to look more closely at his prayer in just a minute, that he says he's thankful that he's not like other men, and he uses the word extortion, and then later he points, and then I'm not even like this tax collector. You'll recall in our Bibles that Tax collectors were equated with sinners. When, when you want to describe somebody that's a low life in the, new, in the Gospels, it would say a publican and a sinner, a tax collector and sinner. Arr, you can hear the err in it when you read it. Secondly, not only was he an extortionist, but he was considered a traitor. You see, many of them were Jews and they were embedded in the community. You see, you need to understand that the way the tax system worked was that a businessman who would end up being called the chief tax collector or the chief publican would contract with Rome for a region to be able to collect the taxes. All Rome cared about, you see, Rome was an, was an occupying nation, they they ruled over Israel with puppet governors and leaders like Pilate, people like that, and through these religious leaders. But all Rome cared about was that they would get what they deemed they wanted in tax collecting for that region. So a businessman who would then take the title of chief tax collector, chief publican, would contract with Rome that he would deliver on certain dates a certain amount of taxation for this region. He would then in turn hire lower level businessmen who were publicans or tax collectors and their full-time business was to collect taxes. You need to understand that the only way the chief tax collector got his income back from this was that he had to have his lower level tax collectors overcharge because he took a cut from every one of them. He had to have enough to send to Rome to meet their expectations and then he had to have enough to become rich himself. The lower level tax collectors, and who's the most famous one that we know of in scripture? Matthew was a tax collector in his tax booth the day Jesus said, come follow me, man. Changed his life. And so they had neighborhoods and subdivisions that it was their responsible to collect the taxes there. Often they would, Rome would find a Jew who loved money and that they would be able to turn their heart away from their fellow man 
And so they were considered traitors. And the reason they had to do that is because there, everything wasn't written down on paper. There was no, uh, the courthouse didn't have a record of all the landowners and whose farm that was and whose cattle that is and, and whose boat that is. And the local guy knew, oh yeah, that's, that's Tim's boat. Yeah, that's, that's Ray's cattle. I know how to, I know where he lives. Let's go get him and they get their taxes. And they had incredible power, a little bit like guys in black suits and suburbans who carry nine millimeters with silencers, I think. And they, you pay your taxes because you don't want one of those suburbans showing up at your front door. The tax collectors got a lot of power. And so they would leverage these guys and, and they would, they would put them to the limit of their heads exploding with the amount of taxes they had to pay because they were enwealthing themselves. They were enriching themselves on, on whatever they could get out of the people. It ended up being nothing less than extortion. That's who this guy was. And as a result, they were utterly despised. They were considered number three to be despicable. They were hated. They weren't trustworthy. And when you wanted to be derogatory with someone, you'd call him a publican. He's sinner, publican. There's the contrast. Jesus is on purpose setting up a comparison between two men. His listening audience would have immediately been able to picture in living color exactly what the Pharisee was and who he was and exactly who the tax collector was. He moves on, though, and we see embedded in our story that Jesus tells that we can learn a little bit about their hearts. Let's look at a contrast of two hearts. A contrast of two hearts. Let's look at the Pharisee first. We're going to read their body language on this point. Let's just step back and look as Jesus tells the story. It says the two men in verse 10 went up to the temple to pray. That was common. And the Pharisee, it says, was standing by himself. That's all we need to know. It says that later, it says that he prayed but he was standing by himself. In the ESV, that doesn't give us quite enough information. The NIV, I think, translates it that he was standing up. If you compare this with some of Jesus' other exhortation to the Pharisees about their publicity of their spirituality, in Matthew uh, chapter 6, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about those who would stand up in high places or on street corners. In other words, the whole idea here was that in reality, he was doing this to be noticed by people. The Pharisee had a, the Pharisee had a proud, hard heart. We know this because Jesus introduced it, the whole story, because he was talking to people who were righteous in and of themselves, and they treated others with contempt. And then when he prays, he wants to stand up in a high place where people can see him because he's so proud, so pleased with himself. So it's a contrast of two hearts. The Pharisee had a proud, hard heart, and standing by himself or standing up in public is absolutely just the reality that he did it to be noticed by people. Jesus taught us earlier in the Sermon on the Mount that that would be your reward. You're going to put offerings, money in the offering to be noticed. You're going to pray in public to be noticed. You're going to stand on the street corner and pray so that you can be noticed so that everybody can go, wow. Wow, what a spiritual guy. Well, that's your reward. I hope you enjoyed it. That's the Pharisee. He was hard-hearted. He was very proud. Jesus is setting this up on purpose. 
And the second character, we look at his heart and we're reading his body language. The Pharisee we see as he approaches, he finds a high spot. He stands up publicly. He wants everybody to see him, to notice him, to watch him and to hear him. Notice in contrast, as Jesus tells this story, the Pharisee, He's standing by himself. He prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like every other man. We've read that. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off. Notice, let's read his bided language. Number one, he's standing far off. He is, he is, we see immediately, humble of heart. He had a humble, broken heart because number one, he's standing far off. Why? Read the body language. He's going to slip in quietly to the temple where the Pharisee wanted to get as close to the Holy of Holies. He wanted to be in the important places. The tax collector, we recognize in the way he stands off that he is strongly overcome with his sense of personal unworthiness. I'm not worthy to stand close. I need to stay back. Secondly, it says he would not lift his eyes. Look what it says. And the tax collector standing far off, what does that tell us? He had a sense of personal unworthiness. And then it goes on to say he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Why? When you don't lift your eyes up, you're ashamed. He was completely ashamed of himself. Thirdly, It's so bad as we watch his body language, we see him on occasion as he has his head down and you can tell by his body language, he's a defeated, broken man. On occasion, he will take his fists and he will pound his chest and he beats himself on his breast. Total remorse and regret, isn't it? And you can see it all over him. One man comes in proud. Jesus sets it up perfectly, doesn't he, in his storytelling? And then he has this tax collector who comes in, and we're watching him. One man is proud of heart. The other man is humble of heart. One man has a hard heart. The other has a broken heart. One man tries to come in close and stand up front. The other man stays far back, has his head bowed, will not lift his eyes. He's ashamed. He's filled with remorse. So now let's get to the heart of the matter where Jesus is going, and let's critique two prayers Two men, two kinds of hearts, two prayers. Let's look at the Pharisee's prayer now more closely. Verse 11, and the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and everybody knows it because I wear sackcloth and ashes and I look pained on my face. I give tithes. In other places, uh, the Pharisees boasted that even in their little window box gardens where they grew spices, they would take their dill and whatever, and they would count. And if they had seeds and things that they grew, they would count their seeds. And the littlest, smallest thing that they owned, they would even count it out and tithe one-tenth of that to make sure everybody knew that we tithe everything at our house. So righteous. Notice the use of the personal pronoun I five times. I this, I that, I this, I that, I this. Listen, 
It's not, it's not difficult to see, number one, that this guy's prayer was simply self-congratulating. This guy's prayer wasn't to God. This guy, this guy was congratulating himself for being such a good guy, for being better than the rest, for being smart enough not to be despicable, for being smart enough to please God with everything about his life. I am a good guy. And he doesn't even realize how hard-hearted he is and that he ends up treating other people with contempt and that he misses the whole point. And it's self-congratulatory. It reminds you of the Mother Goose nursery rhyme. Little Jack Horner sat in a corner eating a Christmas pie. He put in his thumb and he pulled out a plum and he said, say it with me, what a good boy am I. I man, oh man, what a good boy am I. That's this guy. God, what a good boy am I. Don't you agree, God? I really have it together, God. Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you all agree? Of course. This guy is just proud and arrogant. Makes you sick. I said in the first service, it makes you want to puke. And I said, I won't say that in the rest of the services. (laughs) Not only was he self-congratulating, but he was self-confident. He was self-confident. He prayed with a sense of superiority, and you can see it in the way the Lord sets up the story. I give all this stuff. He knows that he's done everything right, and no one can tell him otherwise. He has no need of God. He's his own God. Well, you can see at the end of the story that Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man, talking about the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. That would be the the Pharisee, and so underneath the margin on number two, you could simply write, God did not hear him. He was proud, he was arrogant, and God did not lift him up. So let's look at the tax collector in his prayer. This is really the heart of the matter of the story that Jesus is telling. I mean, this guy almost makes you want to weep, doesn't he? But the tax collector, standing far off in his unworthiness, He would not even lift up his eyes in his shame. He beats himself on his breast in his remorse. And here's his prayer, one of the most powerful, poignant prayers in all of Scripture. Listen closely. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There it is. And immediately, what do we see? Number one, we see that it is the spillover of a convicted heart. It is no formula prayer. It is just the spillover of a heart that's ready, a heart that's sick of itself, a heart that is sinful and dark, and he's done. Number two, he demonstrated in his prayer a deep awareness of his sinfulness, didn't he? He demonstrated in his prayer a deep awareness of his sinfulness. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He says it the way it is. He doesn't try to soft sell it. He doesn't try to use some other terminology. He is a sinner, and he's telling God, I know I'm a sinner. He's admitting his sinfulness. Number three, he is indicating in his prayer how absolutely done he is with his old ways. I'm going to tell you something. This is the point when you start getting ready to come to God in earnestness. You know, people that talk about God, that talk about Jesus, that say they're Christians and they continue in their sin and they continue in their sin and they continue in their sin. And almost always it's because they have never reached a part where they are really done with this. And I think this tax collector's there. 
He won't even come in close. He stays at a distance. He won't even raise up his eyes. He's pounding himself on his own body. He is so sick of his old ways. I'm done. This might be a good time to let our eyes go down to the text box. I didn't even give you blanks. I just want to run through it. I thought it would be worthwhile to observe in the tax collector's prayer what it did not accomplish. What did this man's prayer not accomplish? Number one, uh, you need to know it did not change his reputation that day. Uh, I suspect it was the beginning of a new way of living for him, and in the end, he had a new reputation. But know that when you pray this prayer, it doesn't always change your reputation right away. Uh, You need to see and remind yourself that it did not repair broken relationships or restore lost opportunities. This guy had been living in sin a long time. He can't undo the past. It did not assure that his life ahead would be easier. Hey, I'm really miserable the way I've been living. Maybe God could make my life easier. In the end result, I suspect that his life was easier, but it doesn't always work that way. This is no magic formula. This is the cry of a man with a broken, sinful heart who's ready for change. Another thing that his prayer didn't do is it did not remove the consequences of sinful choices of the past. You know, the wake of all the lousy, rotten, sinful decisions that you've been leaving in your past you pray this prayer for God of mercy, and he doesn't go back and fix it. You've got to move forward. He doesn't und- I noticed a headline this week about the, uh, the late-night talk show interviewer. Um, say his name. It's blanking. I mean, I didn't write it down. You know, Larry King. And uh, Larry King made a headline this week that his wife, who's 30 years younger than he, is divorcing him. He's about 85. She's about 59. And um, it said it was his seventh wife. He's an interesting guy. He's really well known for his compelling interviews. One of his favorite people to interview is Pastor John MacArthur. Uh, You can go to YouTube and see some of his interviews. They're really interesting. And John MacArthur excels in that format, in that context, and he brings the Word of God right here. And they say that his staff has told people that, Larry King's staff has told people that John MacArthur's his favorite person to interview, and that when the TV turns away for commercial breaks, uh, Larry King always turns and talks to John MacArthur and ignores the other guests because he wants to get Bible answers to his questions. I really don't know his spiritual condition, um, and I don't know really the the life history of this tax collector, but, you know, this prayer didn't undo the baggage and the trash and the trail that was left behind of seven marriages. You can't undo it. But what can it do? Go back up to number four. This prayer acknowledged in his, it acknowledged his utter helplessness to find relief from his guilt apart from an imputed righteousness from God. Don't panic. That word is I-M-P-U-T-E-D, imputed. We're going to explain it in a minute. Here's what I'm saying. That man comes to God, and in his prayer, you recognize that he sees that God has something that he needs, and he needs God to give him something he can't come up with on himself. That's what imputation is. God's going to give him something that he really desperately needs, and he cannot muster up on his own. 
You see, the, the Pharisee in his self-righteousness and his self-congratulatory prayer, he was very proud of what he had provided for himself. The, the despicable tax collector, he recognizes that I have nothing that can impress God and that the only thing I need is what God can give me and I can't get it on my own. I will explain imputation just a little bit more right at the end of our sermon. Number five, as we analyze his prayer, number one, it was the spillover of a convicted heart. Number two, it demonstrated a deep awareness of his sinfulness. It also indicated how absolutely done he was with his old ways. It acknowledged his utter helplessness to find relief from his guilt apart from an imputed righteousness from God. And number five, his prayer was heard by God and it resulted in his justification. Another $5 church word. Look what the text says. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. You see, he humbled his heart and God heard his prayer. And in the end, he was lifted up. So let's talk about that word justified. What does that mean? It seems like it's really important because when the man in his brokenness and his sinfulness prayed for God to be merciful to him, it says, Jesus says that God justified him. So let's go to Titus chapter 3. We're not going to look up all these verses and we really are winding down. So please stay focused and stay with me. In Titus chapter 3, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus 3, beginning with verse 4, notice what it says. The Apostle Paul is writing to young Pastor Titus, and he gives him some instruction that unfolds very similarly to what we've just seen transpire in the life of the tax collector. Titus 3, 4. Now look at it closely. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appear. Okay, so the tax collector is coming to God in his brokenness and he doesn't need to be hit by a sledgehammer. He needs the loving kindness of God, doesn't he? And God is a loving, kind Savior. He saved us not because, verse 5, of works done by us in righteousness. You see, the Pharisee thought that his righteous works would save him. The tax collector knew he didn't have any righteous works. And Paul says to Titus that the kindness, the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared and he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's the tax collector. That's the despicable saying, be merciful to me. God, I need your mercy. What is mercy is when God holds back the condemnation for our sin that we deserve. Mercy is God is holding back what I do deserve. Let's continue reading. According to his own mercy, by what? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That is the new birth. Regeneration is being born again. It's a new beginning. Remember, we cannot undo the past. I cannot fix everything that I broke in the past in my sinfulness. But I move forward and I am now a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. And renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to regenerate me. He's going to work in me. Whom... God poured out, the Holy Spirit is poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Here it is, so that being justified by his grace, 
Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve, okay? So mercy is God holding back his condemnation, and grace is God giving us all of the blessings in Christ that we don't deserve. He says that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We won't take the time. I would challenge you to look up the other verses. One of them is Romans 5.1. In Romans 5.1, it says that when you're justified, you have peace with God. So that despicable tax collector, when he went away, after he prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, Jesus said God justified him. It It meant that he was, from that moment on, at peace with God. So let me use my famous file cabinet illustration. And let's close. Watch closely. Watch really closely. I mean, listen, it's not magic. It's just you got to watch and listen and think. So we pretend there's a big file cabinet in heaven. Remember, I had my file cabinet up here once and illustrated that. There's a big file cabinet in heaven. And then in the file, there's a file of all the sinners. There's a sin file. If you could go to heaven and... I'm making this up, but it's a manner of thinking. If you could get to heaven and you could look in the sin file and you open up the sin file and you look in the sin file and you open it up, in the sin file is a file on me. I'm in the sin file. And then not because I'm smarter than everybody else, not because I tithe everything I have, not because I fast twice a week, because one day I was so done with my old ways. I was so sick of my sin. I was so ready for God to be merciful to me. I have to undo. I was born in sin. I'm broken in sin. And the only thing I can do is bow my head. I can't even lift up my eyes before God and just say, be merciful to me, a sinner. On that day at the foot of the cross when the blood of Christ cleanses me from all sin and he justifies me. See, we know this is a good prayer. This prayer recorded by Luke in the story that Jesus told, God be merciful to me, a sinner, spoken from the broken heart of this despicable tax collector. It worked in the eyes of God, not because of the words, but because of the brokenness of his heart. And God took him, me, the tax collector, anybody who's been to the cross, and he takes you out of the sin file and he puts you in the Jesus file and there is now no record that you were ever in the sin file. So you see, that is justification. Justification is a decision in the mind of God where he declares the sinner That would be me and the despicable me and the despicable tax collector. That's when God, because of our faith in Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ, is merciful and he pulls us out of the sin file. He erases us. There's no record in the sin file. And now in the file cabinet in heaven under Jesus, you look up Jesus and in that sin file you find me. I really like this. That is justification. The declaration of God judicially declaring me as never having sinned, past, present, or future. It is a technical judicial decision that God makes at the point of your salvation when you say, be merciful to me, a sinner. But it doesn't stop there. It actually gets a little bit better. 
Okay, so justification is really about the sin file being wiped clean. Justification means I'm no longer in the sin file. Okay? But now, at that point, it's just like blank. And if you want to find me, I'm in Christ now. I'm in the Jesus file. But God goes one step further, and he doesn't just put me in Christ, but he takes everything that is the riches in Christ and the righteousness of Christ and everything about Christ, and he takes Christ and he files them in me so that when you look up me in the Jesus file, not only am I in the Jesus file, but Jesus is in my file as though everything Jesus did is my credit. Everything about Jesus is credited to me. I like that even better. So not only am I not in the sin file, no longer in the sin file and no record of me being in the sin file. I am in the Jesus file, but more than that, when you look up me in the Jesus file, lo and behold, all of the record there is Jesus. I don't deserve it. I didn't do it. You can't earn it. It's not works. It is God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and the blood of Christ cleanses me. It's credited to my sin to his account, and God justifies me. And like the like the despicable tax collector knew, he knew that he needed something that he had to get from God. He couldn't get it from himself. He needed the righteousness of Christ credited to his account so that when God would look up me, he would see Jesus in the account. That is imputation. Imputation is God taking something from Jesus and giving it to me. Now, there's really three stories of imputation in the Bible. The first one is Adam's sin in the very beginning. And Adam's sin was imputed to all of us. That's our foundational problem. And then out of Adam's sin, we really do a really good job of sinning. And we scream at our parents and we have sex outside of marriage and we take drugs and we get drunk and we steal stuff and we do all kinds of horrible things and we look down on people and we call them despicable because we think we're self-righteous and we're arrogant and we're proud and we're haughty. All of that is because a result of Adam's sin that is imputed to me. But then one day on the cross, all of my sin was imputed to Christ. All of my sin was credited to Christ as though he sinned and he became sin for me who knew no sin. And then one day when I'm at the foot of the cross, there's one more imputation when God declares us righteous in justification. He then imputes all of the goodness of Christ and puts it in my account. And the righteousness of Christ is imputed to my account. And I can go home with my head up and my heart clean. I can't necessarily undo all the garbage that's gone on, but I have a new beginning. I have a new relationship. I have a new hope. I have a new future. And I am justified. Will you bow your head right now? Number one, who do you identify with in the story? The tax collector or the sinner? Who do you identify with in this story? As you analyze these two men, who do you most identify with? Number two, are you able to say with confidence that you are at peace with God because you've been justified? You are at peace with God. And number three, has the Spirit of God been convicting you about your sinfulness? both the sinfulness that was imputed from Adam to you and then the sinfulness that you can muster up on your own creativity every day, every hour, all the time. And with the tax collector, can you bow your head right now?
and you say this prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you can go away justified, a one-time declaration of you becoming righteous in your standing before God, and he imputes the work, the workings of Christ on your behalf as though you did it. I'm not playing games. Don't you play games. But if right now in your heart you're crying out to God, I would like you to do one, two little things. I'd like you to look up and wave at me. You're saying, I am praying. Thank you, sir. I am praying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Thank you, buddy. Thank you, ma'am. Just keep doing it till I see you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's good. Some of you are just recognizing your own sinfulness anew and afresh. This act of justification is a one-time declaration. God bless you as you have a tender heart, a broken heart. Don't even raise your eyes before God, groaning and moaning and not even drawing near because I'm so done with the old ways. I'm going to linger at the end of the service. If you'd like to speak to me, please come forward. I'll be praying. I couldn't catch everybody. There was at least six or eight people that indicated they're praying this prayer. I'd love to pray for you by name if you would come tell me, but it's okay. May God bless you as you you walk with him and as you humble your heart before him and as you do away with all of the righteousness, self-created righteousness that is nothing other than what the Apostle Paul said, a pile of garbage. Stand with me and pray now in conclusion, would you please? Father, you know our hearts, you know our minds. You understand the reality of who we are. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we've had to just compare ourselves in this story that Jesus told so well. The self-righteous, hard-hearted Pharisee or the broken, despicable tax collector. Thank you for that wonderful prayer he prayed. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Thank you for the beauty of justification and that you're willing to do that on Christ's behalf and his work for us and that you impute his righteousness to us. Father, help us to revel in these truths. Help it to be life-transforming. Help us to clearly now walk in newness of life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go. Chairs can stay up. If you need to talk or counsel, please come forward. God bless you with a great day.